You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we'll talk with artist and producer Todd Rundgren about his new virtual tour, Producing the Mighty Bat Out of Hell, and more. But first, we've got some new music. I never believed in the rubber. I never saw nobody climb over my fence. No black bag, no gloved hand. I never believed in the rubber. I figured everything I took was gone. Nothing to do, nothing to that is a little bit of the song Robber, the opening track on Ignorance, the fifth album from The Weather Station. Greg, The Weather Station is a band, a unit, but for all intents and purposes, it is really one extraordinary singer-songwriter, Tamara Lindemann, uh, who has been performing as The Weather Station for some time. She'd uh, cut her teeth singing in the folk clubs uh, and coffee houses of that vibrant Toronto scene. She migrated to Toronto after uh, growing up in a rural part of Ontario, Canada, singing to herself, singing in the choir. She began writing the songs for this new album, Ignorance, in early uh, 2019 at home, playing on a toy keyboard. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But when she went in to record, she said her goals were the more lush orchestral sounds of, uh, you know, vintage Fleetwood Mac, uh, Roxy Music, and Talk Talk, an interesting influence there. Let's play a track from this new album, Ignorance, Tamara Lindemann's fifth record, and we'll come back and give our reviews. This is Parking Lot by Weather Station on Sound Opinions. Parking lot from the new Weather Station record, Ignorance, the fifth studio album from the Weather Station, a.k.a. Tamara Lindemann. Uh, Boy, what a step up from those early bedroom artist days on the folk scene in Toronto to this record, in which we have no less than 15 musicians and singers accompanying Tamara in the studio. Uh, A very, as you said, Jim, a very lush record, flute, saxophone, keyboard synthesizers, multiple percussionists, a string section. Uh, this is an art pop record writ large, uh, very much in the mold of uh, some of those 80s influences you cited. I'm hearing a lot of uh, 80s Brian Ferry lushness, yeah. uh, some post-rumors uh, era Fleetwood Mac lushness. Remember those 80s records with Lindsey Buckingham? Those records seem to me be incredibly elaborate, yeah. well-produced, very and shiny and polished. And thousands on those records. Yes, <laughs> indeed, indeed. 
But I also love the way, as big as the record can sound at times with the layers of production, uh, these songs are very intimate. Uh, she's singing about big subjects in a very intimate way. For example, the first song, Robber, has these really jazzy motifs moving through it, some classical orchestration. She's talking about Robber being uh, the failures of colonialist capitalism. I mean, you know, all non-indigenous people in North America are basically robbers, is what the song is saying. Mm. As a Canadian, she's saying, I'm living on somebody else's property right now. It was stolen from them. I don't identify with the robbers, but that is, in fact, who I, who I actually am. And you get this heavy-duty sentiment, but it's not in a kind of a finger-pointing, you know, uh, preachy mode. It's, it's woven into a very uh, beautiful art song. Ditto for Parking Lot, that song we just played. It's a love song for a bird. She sees a bird <laughs> singing its heart out, right? It's chirping away in the middle of a climate crisis. A lot of songs here about the climate crisis in this planet. Here she microscopes it down to a moment in her life that brought tears to her eyes. The, the fragility of that bird and yet the endurance and resilience of that bird spoke to her in a way of like, this little creature is enduring what we're trying to do to this planet, you know? And I don't feel really good about it, you know? No, and it, it's, it just how kind can of, this bird keep singing? Exactly. So it's a beautiful sentiment expressed in a very relatable, uh, detailed, small moment in her life about a macro subject. And I think that's what she does so well on this record. Well, you know, I I generally hate uh, music critics who think they're English professors, although I am one. So I guess I have the right to talk about these lyrics, which are truly extraordinary, Greg. It is called Ignorance. because she is talking in two different ways about that uh, period in your life when you have no idea what the future will bring. In part, it's about a relationship ending, what does the future bring, and in part, it's about climate change. Many of these songs, uh, as you were saying, deal with the planet dying, Uh, but like that little bird, Lindemann is optimistic. It's not ignorance as in, you know, ignorance is bliss. It is ignorance Yes, I don't know what's coming next, but with that trepidation about whatever's coming next uh, comes possibilities. Maybe Mm. it will be a better world that we can build with a Green New Deal. Maybe it'll be a better relationship, the one that I deserve. I think uh, lyrically, you know, she is up there with some of her heroes and uh, country mates, you know, Leonard Cohen, Joni Mitchell. Uh, She's Mm -hmm. proven herself that good. That having been said, you know I love Roxy music. I really love talk, talk. <laughs> but the the elaborate orchestrations sometimes get in the way for me with uh, the heartfelt messages and her voice. Um, you know, I, I, it's not the Roxy music of those first two albums with Ding, Brian Eno. It's the Roxy music of Avalon. When they were so wispy, you you worried that they would just float away, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, but it's beautiful. Yeah, 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 beautiful. Yeah, I, I wish there was a little more grit. You're not, you're not wishing for a little less polish, a little more... Uh, 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 authenticity, some grit. I think there's a, I think there's emotional intensity in in her her voice and her lyrics, especially, you know. And I think that that more than justifies the. I think the lushness almost balances that. Okay, I'm quibbling. An extraordinary artist, we both agree. Indeed, Jim. And we want to ask our listeners what they think about the weather station. Leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org, and let us know what you think. Coming up, we talk with artist and musical innovator Todd Rundgren. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions.
welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRogatis. And that's a little bit of the song, I Saw the Light, by our guest today, Todd Rundgren. Since the beginning of his career in the late 60s, Todd has been an innovator, a trusted collaborator, and a multi-talented musician and producer. He's had success as a solo artist, where he often sang and played all the instruments, and he spearheaded groups like Naz, Utopia, and Runt. Prolific producer, as we mentioned, including Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell and the self-titled debut from the New York Dolls, and many, many more. Over the decades, uh, Todd has traversed musical genres, uh, garage rock, uh, hard rock, electronic music, pop, progressive rock, you name it. He's also been an early adapter when it comes to new technology, whether that's in music videos, electronic instrumentation, or ways to connect with his fans. And he continues to find creative and new ways to bring music to the people, which is the reason Todd is joining us today. He is putting on a 25-city virtual tour, which began in Buffalo on February 14th. A few weeks back, we spoke with Todd from his home in Hawaii, and Greg, you can even hear some of the farm animals <laughs> out in the background. Indeed. Todd, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you so much. Great to be here. You are the first and perhaps only artist who is going to be touring the nation in February and March of 2021. Congratulations, you're a pioneer. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be virtually touring 25 shows targeted to 25 cities across the U.S., all coming out of a venue in Chicago, but each one of them is tailored to the particular town that will be virtually playing. We have a whole sort of localization effort that goes into that that's not only meant to uh, reinforce for the audience the, the idea that they're in a certain place, but uh, just as importantly for us, the performers. This idea of a virtual tour, it is groundbreaking on a number of levels. I understand, though, that you've had this in mind for pre-COVID, right? You were already conceiving something like this. Is that right? Yeah, the original issue was was related to climate change and how ever more often I would find myself in an airport waiting for a delayed flight, trying to get to the next gig, or having a flight canceled and then suddenly scrambling around trying to find new connections to get to the gig. And this climate thing is, it's not suddenly going to get better. In fact, it's likely going to get worse. So the idea of traditional touring becomes more and more challenging. And so I thought, well, how do we deal with that in, in an uncertain world? So the first idea was perhaps we set up in a venue, but we broadcast to another venue. We broadcast to like to a, a hall or a club somewhere that's got video projection and do a show point to point. Uh, so the only thing that's missing is the travel and everything else is almost the same because the audience goes to the venue, uh, they watch the show, they get drunk, <laughs> they buy merch, you know, all the other things mm. that would happen. But then, of course, we have, the, you know, this latest situation, and now the audience can't get to the gig. So then I realized if there's going to be any sort of performer audience interaction at all we've got to do the complete virtual picture virtualize the audience as well as virtualizing the band and that's where we are now hello it's me i 
it's fascinating, Todd. You, you've always been on the cutting edge of technological innovation in music. I like the idea that while some artists are attempting to do the virtual concert, one big concert that everybody can join, you think that there's something uh, inherently special in the live music presentation of, of being in the same place, the same locale as an audience, right? I mean, I, 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 first and foremost, I always think I'm a drummer, right? If I don't feel that bass drum in my chest, I'm missing something in a live performance. We can't do that now because we'd all like to live. But you're additionally then taking beyond that, if I can't be there in the room with the artist, um, it is nice to know the artist is speaking to me where I physically am. Well, as a performer, we need to convince ourselves in a certain way that we're not doing 25 shows in the same venue, you know, to a bunch of video cameras. We need to be mentally in the same space as the audience is in a way. And so we put a whole lot of effort into the localization aspect of it. For instance, our backstage is going to be redressed for every gig that we're at. In other words, we're going to have uh, like posters of landmarks and sports teams from the from the town that we're going to. Uh, we'll have the local periodicals in there. We'll set the clock. We'll set the clocks to the local time uh, of the virtual venue that we're playing, and we're even going to some lengths to try and get the same kind of food we would have eaten if we're in that town. In other words, if we're playing in Buffalo, we're going to try and get some Anchor Bar wings sent to us. And, you know, I make a big deal about eating them, too, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, the rock, the rock star joke is traditionally you walk out on stage in Cleveland, you know, hello, Detroit! Exactly, yes. Spinal <laughs> tap joke, you know. The blur of traveling is, um, you know, it's part of the problem. It's, it's the worst part of touring is the travel part. We've learned a whole lot already about, you know, the differences between doing a regular tour and doing a tour like this. It's scary. It's scary because, you know, we're going in a world full of COVID. We're getting everybody together and traveling to a remote location and ideally living in a bubble for two months without anybody getting infected. And that's a scary prospect to start with. But there are signature differences between doing this and doing a regular tour. If I'm doing a regular tour, I've got a series of promoters who advance me the money to mount the tour from ticket sales that they're making, you know, and then and then they collect the money from the audience and then it gets paid to me or divided up according to some previous formula. I'm the promoter of this, you know. There are no local <laughs> venues. I have to bankroll the entire thing. And the dynamic is so completely different than, you know, than terrestrial gigging. When uh, you play a venue that people know about, they, uh, the hardcore part of the audience, they rush out and buy tickets right away because they know that their, their favorite seats are going to go. And so they want to get dibs on a seat. When they know they're going to a virtual show, what's the rush? <laughs> you know, they may all show up mm -hmm. the day of the show, which means that I would already be, you know, big six figures in the hole before the very first gig. <laughs> so it's, it's a gamble. We won't know what the audience response is until almost when it's happening, you know, when the thing starts happening. 
And, you know, the hope is that the word of mouth around the gig will, you know, will close the gap. But right now, it's, it's pretty scary. <laughs> Todd, uh, you're also a brave man. You're coming to Chicago in the middle of winter. Um, you're, you live in Hawaii now, dude, totally right? Aware I mean, of that. Come on. Well, there are. Well, there is that essential problem of time zones, and you know that when you mention, you know that uh, that many artists figure, oh, let's just do one event, sell as many tickets as we can, and mm. you know, and and broadcast it globally. Uh, that means that some people are going to be watching the show at 4 a.m. in the morning. You know, some people, it'll be at lunchtime, you know, <laughs> things like that. Yeah. You know, part of the, I guess, part of the appeal of localizing the shows is, you know, people are used to having a show at like eight o'clock at night so that they are done work and they're done their dinner, you know, and it's not yet bedtime. And so it fits into their schedule. For us, we have to make the adjustment. But that's why we picked something in the central time zone, why we picked Chicago. So if we do an eight o'clock show in New York, it's only seven o'clock for us, which isn't so bad. And we do yeah. an eight o'clock show in Los Angeles and it's 10 o'clock for us, which isn't so bad. We've done shows at seven, we've done shows at 10. What we haven't done is shows at noon. Yeah. <laughs> well, so uh, the tour is called Clearly Human. And a big part of it, uh, correct me if I'm not phrasing this right, Todd, is your is going to be the Nearly Human album from 1989. Why that record? That record was a turning point for me in a number of respects. first thing I did after I moved to San Francisco and I had been living in upstate New York and I was pretty isolated from any sort of musical scene principally because the Woodstock area is mostly was like folk music and things like that you know there was a little bit of R&B but not a whole lot but a couple of things uh, for me changed when I moved to San Francisco one I got much more into R&B thinking you know I've dabbled in it and I really like R&B, but I've not made the full commitment to, you know, to try and be an R&B singer. And so I decided that I would write material that would challenge me to do that. Uh, the other thing was that I was, you know, suddenly I was in a whole new musical scene and meeting lots and lots of musicians. And also, you know, being a record producer, tracking the evolution of the process and kind of bemoaning the fact that records were an, uh, uh, an ever more elaborate overdubbing process. My career in the 60s, I remember when the Naz was auditioning, you know, to get a record deal, you'd get a half an hour in a studio and do as much as you can live. You know, right. no time for overdubbing, you know, <laughs> you got to do at least yeah. three yeah. decent takes in a half hour. 
And there's a particularly magical thing that happens when you're doing that is that at some point you have the realization that you're listening to the record while you're doing it. You're in some weird time travel space, you know, where you're in the present making the record, but you're also in the future listening to the record, you know, right. that you've made. And, and in the way that everyone who eventually will hear the record hears it. And so that was a magical experience. And the tour that we did behind that was equally magical because I had never put together like a big scale review before, you know, with like 10 backup musicians and, and focus on this sort of R&B and gospel music approach, which is different than rock and roll. And, uh, and we just had the time of our lives doing it and have always wanted to repeat it. But shortly after that, I left Warner Brothers and I had never got tour support again. <laughs> so I couldn't yeah. afford to take... You need tour support for 10 musicians. I couldn't yeah. afford to take a giant band around anymore, so... Again, you know, your 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 philosophical thinking on on making music uh, about the importance of making it live with a group of people for an audience in the moment. It really seems like uh, you know having having the ability to hear live music taken away from us. You've spent a lot of time and energy into what's the best we can do to replicate that. It's you know that's a certainly an aspect of it, but I have to remind myself what is it that's different about what I do or what anybody does that people pay a ticket to watch. And it's performance. It's, it's out of the ordinary. It's not what people, it's not like people's everyday lives. It's like you're working at an office, but if you have to pee, you just get up and go pee, you know? But if you're on stage for two hours and you have to pee, tough luck, you know? <laughs> you have to hold it. For the whole two hours, you know? That's what people pay to see. They, they <laughs> Todd, you're at the stage where, you know, you could do just about anything. You could keep making recordings the rest of your life. You, you, don't, you wouldn't have to leave home. You could produce records, um, you know, in one place if you wanted to. Um, what, what compels you to continue to, to go out there? And, and as you just said, this is not a low-risk tour in terms of personal health, things like that, but yet you still feel important compelled to do this what what is it that uh, motivates you to continue doing it um i think if you would ask most musicians unless something compels them to they would never retire musicians don't dream of retirement they dream of playing until they die <laughs> mm. and those are my heroes you know bb king uh tony bennett you know people who just play as long as they can play as long as they can physically do it they do it and that's what i that's how I envision my life. As long as I can physically do it, I'm going to do it. It's an important part of my life because I, no other aspect of my life resembles it. There is that performance aspect where you have to get into a certain head for like at least two hours and can't get out of it. You know, it's a, it is a, it's like a form of self-hypnosis in a way. And the rewards of it are really rich. You know, some people don't like it. And when I first started performing, I couldn't sing and I hated it. 
but eventually I learn how to sing and I really enjoy it. I feel good after I do it. After two hours of doing it, I feel like doing it even more. Buffalo on February 14th and Seattle, March 22. Those are going to be five weeks of fun for you. That's what we're hoping for, you know. I mean, that's, you know, the biggest selling point of this whole show is the fact that we have all of these people on stage and they all want to be there. They're all having the time of their lives and they're doing it together and they're having all of these interactions with each other. And I think that's our product. Our product ultimately is... It's, you know, equal parts fun and in a way some comforting, actually. There's a comforting mm -hmm. aspect about it in the subject matter of the music and celebration. You know, just the, the climatic song of the, of the album and the climatic song of the show is I Love My Life. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Todd Rundgren and focus on the great records he produced for artists like Meatloaf and XTC. And we'll share some of our favorite works from Rundgren. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRigatis. And this week, we're talking with artist and producer Todd Rundgren. Now, I asked Todd what his philosophy as a producer is and whether he brings his same style to each project or tailors it to the individual bands and artists he works with. Well, I think there's the rare occasion where you do a record that is really, you know, that's like an art project, like Skylarking for XTC. That was a real art project and it re did require some meticulous assembly. You know, in as much as the songs ran into each other, um, that we were almost painting with music as opposed to trying to capture live performances. There's only a trio anyway of guys. And when they came here, they didn't have a keyboard player or a drummer, you know, so all of that had to be uh, added to the mix and as well as all of the other things that we did on the record. So there are those, you know, rare occasions when something like that is justified. But my normal modus operandi eventually evolved to, first of all, I want to hear all the material that's going to be on the record before we go in the studio. Because I don't want to go in the studio and suddenly discover we've only got a half a record's worth of material. Because things really go downhill fast after that, you know. Trying to write frantically, you know, while you're paying for studio time, that, you know, it's just not, not the way to do it. So I would prefer the band, if at all possible, to have practiced and played the, you know, if it's a band, you know, it's not always a band, but to have practiced and played the material before they get into the studio instead of using studio time to learn it and then hoping at some point they'll get a take of it. Because I don't believe that, you know, spending a year in the studio is a way to make a record. 
Pers my personal philosophy has been the shortest amount of time possible makes the best records. And that, that's pretty much borne out, you know, bat out of hell. We rehearsed for almost two weeks before we went into the studio to do that. And while the singing wasn't live, all the playing was live. And so to do the recording, the basic recording of it was less than two weeks for an album that wow. went on to sell 50 million copies or something like wow. Longest-running uh, feud we've had in Siskel and Ebert style is I will contend, Todd, that Bad Out of Hell is a better record than any Springsteen record. Because if you're going to do teenage angst uh, uh, rock opera, uh, have a sense of humor about it, like Meatloaf. I'd rather, uh, honest to God, I'd rather listen to Bad Out of Hell than, than uh, Darkness on the Edge of Town. Well, I think you could make the comparison that Bruce Springsteen is like... Uh, it's like Tiger Rose wine. <laughs> it's like, or a 40 ounce or something like that. And meatloaf is like bourbon whiskey. Meatloaf is the whole thing like distilled down, you know, into something yeah, where like yeah. all the other niceties are gone. Bruce will talk about other things. Bruce will sing about Nebraska. Meatloaf's only gonna sing about leather jackets and motorcycles <laughs> and switchblades. <laughs> And that's it, all right? <laughs> now, Todd, Todd, did you, I mean, you've asked, been asked this a bunch of times, but when you were working on the Meatloaf record, did you know that it was going to be this thing? I mean, just this gigantic thing that was just going to resonate for decades? We didn't even have a label when we were working on it. Uh, he had a label when we started. I wouldn't have taken the project on if he hadn't had a label. But the day before we went in, after all the rehearsals, the day before we were going into Bearsville Studios, Meatloaf says, uh, I want to get off my label. They're they're um, they're picking on me. I don't think they understand me. You know, they're complaining about the budget. Uh, so I went off my label, and I and I said, I'm not your manager. I can't tell you what to do. But you realize there's nobody to pay for this record if you get off the label. And he said, No, I'm getting off the label. So I realized I had to go to Bearsville and say, um, All right, put this record on my tab. And you can have the writer first refusal on the record when it's done. So we eventually finished the record and Bearsville turned it down. And so, yeah. ouch. And so did Warner Brothers, who was distributing Bearsville. They say, what is this? Wow. Big fat guy, and these songs are too long, and, you know, and all of the you know, arguments against why it could possibly happen. But a couple things uh, transpired. One is they wouldn't give up on the record, so they, they, walked it around to everybody and then finally found a little label to put it out, Cleveland International. By, it was just like one guy, his name was Steve Popovich, and he just believed in the record and wouldn't give up on it. And they put one single out and nothing happened, put another single out and nothing happened. That didn't deter him. He put a third single out and things started to happen. And why did they happen? First of all, Meatloaf toured relentlessly yeah. Just went right after the record was finished, even before the record was finished, just went out and played anywhere he could get a gig. Just played and played and played. 
the second thing that happened, or the third thing that happened, the first thing was finding a guy who believed in the record. <laughs> second was, you know, playing his ass off. Third was MTV. MTV had just come on the air, and there weren't a whole lot of videos for them to play. And the VJs were just like DJs. They wanted to find the longest thing that they could find to play so that they could go up to the roof and get high. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Paradise by the Dashboard Light was playing once an hour on MTV. Yeah. Well, I remember every little thing as if it happened only yesterday. Parking by the lake and there was not another car inside. You know, it was just, it was relentless. It just, they, you know, they just constantly played it because it gave them all this break time and because there weren't as many videos to play. And everybody as was well fascinated. As well they should have, Greg. As well, I would play it once an hour, still. <laughs> we have been talking to Todd Rundgren about the Nearly Human Tour. Thank you, Todd. All right, thanks a lot, everybody. After our conversation with Todd, we realized there's way more music than we could possibly touch on in one interview. I mean, this man has had decades of music making. So we're each going to highlight one album of Todd's and one that he's produced. Now, Jim, you're going to go first. I am. I'll start with a song that Todd uh, wrote, recorded, and had a hit with. Bang the Drum All Day, the 1983 anti-work anthem celebratory song that uh, Todd Rundgren wrote for an album that was his 10th studio album in 1982. Um, The title of the album tells the story, Greg, the ever-popular tortured artist effect. (laughs) <laughs> you know, Rundgren was, uh, this was the last album he owed the record company at the time under that deal. He was eager to get it done. Uh, early on, even even uh, critics who loved him said, you know, this was a toss-off pop record, right? Pop, after a period of such experimentation and progressive rock and those garage rock albums with Nas, it was a pop record. But the thing is, he makes writing pop music look so effortless like oh mm. i could have a number one hit anytime i choose you know not for nothing right. does he hang out with an ex-beetle ringo star i don't want to work i just want to bang on the drum all day uh, let me tell you this spoke to a young uh, early teenage gym all right and i was a big fan uh and i went to see rundgren perform with utopia The band that played on this album uh, would soon uh, be officially known as Utopia. Kasim Sultan, uh, the great uh, synthesizer pioneer Roger Powell, and a drummer, uh, John Willie Wilcox. Now, let me tell you about Willie. Uh, You know, Greg, he uh, was, you know, Todd was on the cutting edge of experimenting with electronic drums. And as a dedicated reader, I, I waited every month for the new issue of Modern Drummer. What is happening in the drum world, right? You know, and, and there was a big debate about whether electronic drums were genuine instruments the way a jazz setup was or a rock setup, you know. And uh, what Wilcox did is he built something he called the Trapparatus, trap set combined with apparatus of all electronic drums that looked like the motorcycle in Easy Rider. I'm talking about what you know with the handlebars way up, right. Peter Fonda streaming down the road, and I went to see them and I was just I was mesmerized at Wilcox playing these electronic drums. It was clearly a novelty, so was Bang the Drum all day, but it was a novelty that worked and that worked as great music. So, uh, you know, everybody knows the chorus, but but the words that always resonated for me, ever since I was a tiny boy, I don't want no candy, I don't want no toy, I took a stick and an old 
whole coffee can and I bang on that thing till I got blisters on my hand. That's me. <laughs> That's me and the drums. So give the drummer some. Thank you, Todd Rundgren. Bang the drum all day. Bang the drum all day. I don't know about you, Greg, but I don't want to work. <laughs> yeah, there are days uh, it, sentiment definitely applies. Uh, not today, though. I love working today on Sound Opinions. Because uh, we're talking about Todd Rundgren. What a career. Uh, I, you know, investigating Todd's, uh, you know, this, this reminds me of our Frank Zappa show a few weeks ago. Where do you start? There are so many records in so many different styles that it's impossible to say, oh, this is the one. I'm going to venture out and say, this is the one. <laughs> You're a newcomer to Todd Rundgren. The first record you should go out and get is Something Anything from 1972, his third studio album. That's where he kind of maxed out. 25 songs, double gatefold sleeve album back in the day for kids. You kids who remember that sort of thing. Uh, I, I poured over this album uh, as a youngster. I thought it was just fantastic. The, the hits sucked me in, Hello, It's Me, and I Saw the Light, both huge hits. But then I got into the deeper uh, concepts in the record, the variety of the songwriting, the ballads, the rockers, the concept suites. It was all there. Kind of a blueprint for the rest of his career in many ways. Uh, the song I want to play is uh, was tucked into side three of this quadruple uh, sided record, uh, double record. And uh, it's called Couldn't I Just Tell You? And uh, it is revered by power pop aficionados. Uh, when we talk about the genre of music in the 70s, you know, bands like Cheap Trick, The Raspberries, Badfinger, uh, you know, Star. Uh, Big Star. Big Star were huge Todd Rundgren fans. And of this song in particular, talking to Jody Stevens about Todd's influence, uh, he mentioned this song in particular as something that they were paying attention to. Uh, so as a progenitor of many uh, trends in rock music, uh, Technology-wise and musical-wise, uh, Todd Rundgren was an innovator, this song being uh, among the first, where he essentially set a template for a genre of music. It's a great song. It still holds up very well. One of the few guitar-based songs on a record that was essentially piano-based, because Todd played almost all the instruments on the record on his own, including on this track. Couldn't I Just Tell You from Todd Rundgren on Sound Opinions.
That is Couldn't I Just Tell You from Todd Rundgren's 1972 masterpiece, Something Anything. That was an apropos title. He's giving you something. He's giving you everything. Uh, he's giving you anything. You got it all with Todd uh, on those records. Um, we're going to shift into talking about the man's talents as a producer, Greg. And, uh, you know, producing is one of those things that still is sort of mystical. <laughs> what does the producer bring to the table, especially yep. when it's an act that is very set in its ways? In uh, By 1986, XTC was on the cusp of being forgotten and written off and driven out of the industry. They had one more album left. Famously, during English Settlement, uh, the touring for that, Andy Partridge, the band leader, had melted down on stage, become something of an agoraphobe, said he would never perform live again. They would only record. Problem was, nobody's buying the records, right? They had one more <laughs> that uh, Virgin and Geffen wanted from them, and they went to upstate New York to record with Todd Rundgren. Now, according to uh, the other fellas in the band, Colin Moulding and Dave Gregory, uh, Andy Partridge and Todd got along like chalk and cheese. I think that's a <laughs> Briticism for saying they didn't get along. Uh, Partridge has said he hated what Rundgren was doing. Now, Partridge had always been the executive producer, and he always called the shots over even some other great producers they'd worked with earlier. Um, but Rundgren uh, was going to have his way and, and put his input into this record, and uh, Colin uh, Moulding and Dave Dave Gregory seemed to, to like it, uh, but, uh, you know, Andy Partridge didn't. Um, originally, the song I'm going to play, Dear God, wasn't even included on the album. Partridge didn't want to record it at all. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a really powerful song uh, of a young person writing to God and asking, you know, how come you allow hurricanes and famine and war? You know, don't you care for us? If you exist, can you stop this pain? And uh, Partridge is an atheist, but he didn't think he'd gotten the song right. It didn't say what he wanted. Rundgren made him record it. Uh, Partridge wanted to do it as a sort of Rocky Raccoon skiffle mm. ditty, and Rundgren made it into something very different. He also called down the block uh, in upstate New York um, to uh, bring in the daughter of a friend of his to play the young boy who voices at the beginning and end of the song, you know, Dear God. Uh, it only came out originally as the B-side to the first single, Grass, a song written by Colin uh, Moulding, and uh, that was supposed to be it. But, Greg, this is one of the rare times when college radio had an impact on the market. College mm -hmm. radio DJs in the mid-'80s began playing the song nonstop. Geffen paid attention. They put it on the album. It became a hit, and the album became a hit. album wasn't selling before the song. With the song, it took off. It, it, it gave XTC a new uh, lease on life. Uh, Partridge has never been very gracious to Rundgren about that. <laughs> He's still bad him to this day, but I don't think we'd have ever gotten another decade's worth of music from XTC yeah, that's true. without this song. So, dear God, uh, XTC should be thankful uh, to Todd Rundgren. Here it is. But all the people that you may in your image see them starving on their feet because they don't get enough to
God. Hope you got my letter. XTC. Yeah. Todd Rundgren. Yeah, what a great hit that he created for that band. Absolutely. And as you said, gave them a second life in so many ways. So thank you, Todd. Uh, speaking of thank you, Todd, what a production run he had in the 70s. Major hit records for Grant Funk and, you know, Meatloaf and on and on. Uh, you know, then he got to working with Patti Smith and everybody's going like, what? You know, is it, does that make sense? Well, anybody who'd been paying attention to Patti Smith prior to this moment in the late 70s would have known. Uh, my first encounter with Patti Smith in concert, she was wearing a Naz t-shirt in tribute to Todd's first band uh, back in the 60s. Yeah, the, the uh, garage band that her, her guitarist, Lenny Kay, had included on the Nuggets compilation. On the, on the Nuggets po- compilation. So Kay was a, was a fan as well. Uh, Open My Eyes was the track from Naz. Uh, definitely check it out. It holds up very well. Uh, and then there was, uh, you know, the whole notion of Patty trying to reinvent herself yet again. She was in a new phase in her life. She was about to go into semi-retirement. Nobody knew that yet, but in 1979, she and uh, Fred Sonic Smith, of late of the MC5, were, uh, you know, in a relationship that would soon uh, be uh, end up in them getting married and starting a family in Detroit. And, and uh, Patty would essentially uh, drop off the map. Uh, she was addressing this phase in a very direct way uh, on on this record, lyrically and also sonically. I think she was looking for a new sound to accompany the fact that she was in this new phase in her life. She wasn't. She was no longer the CBGB uh, punk rocker. Uh, she was no longer the arena rock uh, artist who you know had that huge hit with "Because the Night." Uh, a couple of years earlier, she was into a new phase, more a little more pop, a little more polished. Some people didn't like the record because it was more polished. But to my mind, this record holds up really well. And in particular for the songwriting, I think Patty wrote some of her best songs. In fact, I would say one of the, her two most famous songs, the ones that maybe people will identify her by, because the night being one, the other being um, on, on this record, uh, Dancing Barefoot song that's been covered numerous times by many artists over the decades. I think one of Patty's great songs in that it captures sort of that mystical quality of falling in love. What is that moment like? How does it feel? I think she captured it in this song. And, and the atmosphere created around that song in, in Rundgren's production really, I kind of think, helped make the impact so great. No other artist who covered the song, and there have been many, is able to quite capture that same atmosphere that Patti Smith got on the Wave album in 1979, produced by Todd Rundgren. Here's Patti Smith with the Todd Rundgren-produced Dancing Barefoot on Sound Opinions. Dancing Barefoot by Patti Smith, another great Todd Rundgren 
production. Uh, Greg, I think uh, anyone who doesn't listen to their producers when they are smart and talented, like Todd Rundred is, or like our Andrew and Alex are, you're a fool. You know, what's that thing they say about the lawyer who has himself for a client? You know, uh, listen to your producers, kids. It's a good way to live. As always, if you have opinions on Todd Rundren, leave us a voicemail on our website with your thoughts at soundopinions.org. Mr. Cott, what do we have on this show next week? Jim, we got a show with a little bit of a twist. We're looking at the best band lineup changes of all time in the music world. Like reboots or takeovers, yes. hostile takeovers, or not. <laughs> Sometimes not so hostile, but in any case, they reinvigorated a band that had been around for a while with a new member or members in the band. For more sound opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. And speaking of sponsors, every week our show reaches hundreds of thousands of curious listeners from around the globe via podcast and on 150 public radio stations nationwide. If you'd like to learn more on how your business or organization can also reach this engaged and educated audience, you can email sponsor at soundopinions.org. That's sponsor at soundopinions.org. Sound Opinions is produced, as always, by Andrew Gill and Alex Claiborne and our intern, Sol Delgadillo.